One semester of law school. One semester of criminal justice. Two experts. I'm Kristen Pitts. I'm Brandi Egan. Let's go to court. On this episode, I'll talk about a severed foot. And I'll be talking about the Tyneside Strangler. Ooh. I'm sorry. I know you hate it when we make those noises. No, I love it. Okay. (laughs) I'm really excited about a severed foot. You should be. This is crazy. So... First, gotta say, I got this entire thing from this amazing documentary that's on Netflix right now. It's called Finders Keepers. Excellent. Um, Norman had heard about it, and he was like, it might be good for the show. I don't know. He watched it on the plane ride from Kansas City to Atlanta, texted me in the Atlanta airport, and was like, you, you have to have to do oh an my gosh this. so this this script comes entirely from the documentary Excellent. but i'm leaving a ton of stuff out so Wonderful. everyone should watch it it's 2007 we're in maiden north carolina which has a population of about 3300 people wonderful shannon wisnot is at a storage unit auction and he is pumped The dude loves to sell stuff at a profit, loves a deal. So he sees this unit, unit number 48, and it's filled with all kinds of stuff. It's got furniture, knickknacks, a smoker grill. He's like, all right, that one looks good. He bid on it. He won it. So he loads up all the stuff that was in the unit, takes it all home. And the last thing that he unloaded was the smoker grill. Uh Uh-huh. So he's standing around at home looking at this grill. He opens it up. And there's something inside the grill. Oh, no. Is it a foot? (laughs) So he thinks it's driftwood at first. Oh, God. Um, So he picks it up. Does he smell it? I don't know. He didn't mention sniffing it. Oh, God. You guys, she's sticking her tongue out like she's licking. You know, archaeologists... They, like, do the tongue test on stuff when they're determining if it's bone or not. Somehow that's less <laughs> gross to me when it's something that's been in the ground for, uh-huh. like, hundreds and hundreds. of smoker for who knows how long. Exactly. Yeah. So if they, like, archaeologists, when they uncover something and they're trying to determine if it's, I don't know, nothing, rock maybe, or bone, they'll stick their tongue to it. And if their tongue sticks, it's bone. If it doesn't, it's something else. You know what I think? I think an archaeologist told you this and was messing with you. I don't think that really happened. It's real. It's real, I swear. Uh-huh. <laughs> so he picks this thing up, mm-hmm. and that's when he realizes it's a human foot. How much of the foot? Quite a bit. I go back and forth in this script between calling it a leg and a foot. Um, Ooh. It's... It's kind of like knee down. So it's quite a bit. Whoa! That's more than just a foot. (laughs) I agree. I agree. Okay. All right. So he freaks out and he immediately calls the police. Here's how the call went. Dispatcher. What's the problem there? Caller. I got a human foot. (laughs) Dispatcher. Have a what? Caller. A human left foot. (laughs) Very important. (laughs) Include which foot it is. Dispatcher. What's your name? Caller. My name's Shannon Wisenot, and it's Plum Nasty got me grossed out. (laughs) Plum Nasty? Oh my gosh. 
uh, rap name idea. Plum Nasty. I'm Plum Nasty. (laughs) (laughs) And these are my sick beats. (laughs) So police come. They confiscate it. Everyone's kind of like freaked out, grossed out. They start investigating. And it doesn't take very long to figure out why there was a human foot in a barbecue grill. Yeah. And weirdly, there was a perfectly innocent explanation. Really? Because it seems to me like probably somebody was trying to burn a dead body. It does sound that way. (laughs) Hold on to your hat. That's not what's happening? That would be like the most normal, horrifying explanation. Uh That's not what was going on Uh here. Okay. So... John Wood was the original owner of the storage unit Mm -hmm. and also the original owner of the foot. (laughs) Um, He's the one who fell behind on his bill for the storage Uh unit. So that was all of his stuff that Shannon got. So let's talk about John. John and Shannon are about the same age. I believe when this all started up, they were kind of like late 30s, early 40s. But they had very different childhoods. John was the coolest. Oh. John had everything. And it was all thanks to his dad, Tom. Tom was a character. He owned a local furniture company, which employed a ton of people in town. And he bought his kids anything they wanted. So I didn't write all this down, but I believe, like, their basement was a roller skating rink. I mean, what? They, they, yeah, I mean, they they had this huge house. I mean, it was it was quite the deal. They had go karts, all kinds of stuff. We used to roller skate in your basement. You could say that your <laughs> basement used to be a roller skating rink, and then your parents finished it, and then we couldn't. And then roller skate the on Berber it carpet really <laughs> slowed us down. Do you remember roller skating? Oh, down yeah. There? oh yeah, I loved it. Because yeah. we would like, because it was a pretty big basement. Yeah. So we would turn up the boombox. Yes. And you know it was like just skate that party. Floor. Yeah. Man. And then it had like the support. Yeah, we would pole, twirl so you around would twirl around it. Yeah. You know, in a way. I was just as privileged as Tom. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Or John, rather. Okay, so Tom, the dad, was successful. He was an outdoorsman. He was Uh adventurous. John admired his dad so much. Uh His approval meant everything to John. After high school, John went to boot camp, and his dad was super proud. But then when John was on leave, he got into drugs and got kicked out of the military. So this triggered a really nasty cycle. John would do drugs, disappoint his dad, and then he would self-medicate with more drugs. Fast forward to January 17th, 2004. John has been sober for about a year. And Tom has decided to sell the family airplane. Oh my gosh. Do you remember my family airplane growing up? I do. We used to go all over the place in your family airplane. (laughs) So it's it was this little little plane, <laughs> and he already had a buyer, but they wanted to take it out for one final ride. So Tom and John and Tom's brother-in-law and his son all got into the plane. Oh, God, did it crash? It crashed, right? They took off. He lost his leg in the crash. And everything was fine. Oh, God. At first. Oh, no. Uh, the engine started to sputter. Tom was the one flying the plane, and at one point he turned to everyone and said, okay, make sure your seatbelts are on tight. And that's when they took a nosedive. Oh, no. They crashed into the ground. 
And as they were plummeting, Tom had a fatal heart attack. What? Yeah. The plane, he didn't die of a plane crash. He died of a heart attack. Yeah. Holy shit. Yeah. Which I wonder how common that is. I mean, at a certain age, I would think that's expected almost. So something similar to that happened not too long ago. There was like, I don't know. Okay. I remember 14% of the details. I was going to say this is, we're on a rocky start. There was a bus accident somewhere. And I feel like it was because there were icy road conditions and somewhere where typically they don't get snow. I want to say Atlanta, but I don't know that that's true. Okay. Bus accident. For sure in Atlanta. (laughs) (laughs) A man died in the accident. Several people were injured. One man died. But it was determined that he did not die due to injuries from the bus accident. He died of a heart attack due to the panic of the bus accident. Oh, my gosh. That's so sad. Horrible. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, yeah. Same Same thing. thing. Yeah. So... Tom dies in this plane crash. Mm -hmm. The other three were injured. They were rushed to the hospital. And that's when the doctors told John, hey, we're going to have to amputate your leg. Mm -hmm. That's when John got an idea. Asked if he could keep it. Uh (laughs) (laughs) Uh-huh. So the one thing I want to pause and say is that John and Shannon are both very funny people. Uh So this is like, this is a kind of serious story, but they're hilarious Uh people. So just keep that in mind. Okay. So John's like, you know what? I would like to keep my leg. And he has this idea in his head uh, for getting this leg back and having it just be the skeletal remains. And he thought maybe it would Mm -hmm. be a cool memorial to his dad somehow. So he asked the doctors, could I keep the leg? And the doctors were like, "Uh, okay, man, sure. I'm shocked that they let him keep it. Yeah, I I don't know. (laughs) I I guess it's his leg. Yeah, I guess. I wonder if it's one of those things where, like, you've never been asked that question before, so you just kind of panic, and you're like, like, uh, okay. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So after the surgery, Dwayne, the mortician, drove out to John's house with a white trash bag in the back of his minivan. They didn't say this, but it sounds like one of those glad bags with, like, the little red string. Yeah, the red Uh drawstring. Uh-huh. That's what I'm picturing, too. Was it, like, the ones with, like, the force flex where they, you know, real sturdy? Describe force flex. They have, like, it has, like, a, you know, a pattern in the bag that allows it to stretch when you put something sharp against it, like, say, like, a foot. (laughs) (laughs) I I would hope so. (laughs) Or at least double bag it with one of the shitty bags. So Dwayne hands it to John and drives off. Mm-hmm. John opens the thing up. And again, he's thinking he's going to get like just the skeletal stuff. No, it was his whole damn leg. Oh, God. Disgusting. I mean, flesh attached. Yeah. What tendons he, he dangling. They were going to clean it up clean for, it up him? for no, him. No, this is, this is the privilege of like, oh, I had a go kart growing up. You know, you just think that. <laughs> <laughs> so it's. It's disgusting. It's, yeah. it's like the nastiest thing. So John was stunned. This was not what he had in mind. The quote I wrote down from him was, Shoo! Damn! <laughs> He's like, I gotta get this thing in the freezer. <laughs> so he goes to his freezer. He doesn't have room for it. Oh, no. you know, it is a leg. Yeah. Uh, but he had a friend who worked at Hardee's. <laughs> 
What? He put it in their walk-in? So he took it to her, and she said, yeah, I can store it for you for a few hours while you figure things out. So she takes the leg. John drives off. He gets, like, a quarter mile down the road when he gets this phone call. The manager of the Hardys is pissed. The manager is... She wasn't the manager? And she's just like, yeah, sure, I'll put your leg in the freezer? No, to be in management at Hardee's, you've got to be smart enough to know. We're (laughs) not keeping body parts parts in here, sir. So, John comes back. I don't care how many go-karts you had as a kid. (laughs) (laughs) He goes through the drive-thru. They pass him the leg through the drive-thru window. No! That's what he said. And I'm, I'm going with it. I think it's great. Yeah, I'll take uh, <laughs> number three curly fries, mm-hmm. Diet Coke, and my leg, please. <laughs> a side of foot. <laughs> so, so now he's like, well, what am I going to do with this thing? He thought and thought and thought, and finally he got an idea. Maybe he could mummify his foot. So he did. He took it out to his shed. <laughs> Your face. <gasps> he took it to his shed, put it in a roasting pan, got some embalming fluid from a friend at the mortuary, and he started basting his leg with embalming fluid. Okay. Like a turkey, if you will. Yeah, I don't think it works like that. You can't just rub it on the outside. Oh, how does it work, Brandy? I think you have to inject it into the body. Well... Seemed to go okay. Then he took the screen off his front door, wrapped the screen around the leg, hung it up high in a tree for six months to dry it out. <laughs> it's so rare. I mean, what did he Google? Like how to mummify my r- amputated leg? I have no idea how he came up with this. <laughs> He's just like, here's what I did. He even, I think in the documentary, he said he put it in a possum tree, which I don't even know what a possum tree is. But um, he... A tree where possums live, I guess. He seemed pretty confident. And that's, that's what he did. But as his leg is mummifying in this tree, John isn't doing well mentally. He had a lot of guilt over the plane crash. So he had been the co-pilot that day. And even though everyone has said, like, there's nothing he could have done. done, Yeah. But he blamed himself. He thought, what if I'd taken control earlier? You know, he just was constantly running through all these different scenarios where he could have saved his dad. At the same time, you know, he'd been sober for a year until the crash. But then when he got this operation, he was given... Oxycontin. Oh, shit. So he, of course, mm-hmm. relapsed. Relapsed, and... got into alcohol again, got into mm-hmm. drugs. He was addicted in like no time. Mm-hmm. So he was living with his mom at the time and she was taking care of him. But she said that as he got more and more addicted to the pills, he started stealing stuff from her. And eventually she was like, no, I'm, I'm done enabling. I'm kicking you out. At this point, he moves to South Carolina. And okay, even though I just watched this thing yesterday, I can't remember. I think he moved to South Carolina for rehab. I might be wrong. Okay. But anyway, he moves to South Carolina, and before he left, he put all his stuff, including the severed leg, into a storage unit. Mm Hmm. His mom paid the fees on the unit for the first few months, but then she was like, okay, I'm done. 
time to be a big boy, John. You know, time yeah. for you to pay for it. So that's how Shannon ended wow. up with John's leg. So by the by this time, police have investigated. There's obviously no, no foul, foul play. play. It's yeah. weird as hell, but you know, no one's murdered anybody. It's just a fucking crazy story. So they're like, well, what do we do with this nasty leg? I guess we'll do what we always do when we have a dead body. We'll take it to the funeral home. So they take it there. But Shannon is like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I bought that leg. It is mine. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That is exactly. That is exactly what he said. He was like, not so fast. Mm -hmm. I paid for it. I've got the receipt. That is my property. Oh, my gosh. The funeral home is like, whoa, hey, calm down. We're not giving you this other guy's foot. Like, just cool it. Well, Shannon was like crazy mad. Super, super pissed. Because ever since he was a kid, Shannon dreamed of being famous. He wanted to be on TV. He wanted to be in movies. He wanted a bunch of money. But here he was, a grown man, and his dreams hadn't panned out. He had been on Jerry Springer once, and that was wonderful, but it was just one show. When he found John's foot in that smoker grill, Shannon thought he'd finally found his ticket to fame. Yeah. Well, here we are talking about him on our world-renowned podcast, (laughs) Kristen. Uh. How do you determine world renown? I mean, we have listeners in countries around the world, Kristen. That means we are known around the world. Man. Hence, world renowned. We really are more amazing (laughs) than anyone ever gives us credit for. That's right. (laughs) Um, Could we pause? Yeah. And so earlier this week, Mm -hmm. you sent me exciting news about our ranking. Will you tell the folks about our exciting ranking? Oh, yeah. So we have, our podcast has officially charted Mm -hmm. in the world (laughs) uh, in iTunes. So the lowest spot that they chart to is 300. Mm -hmm. Guess who has the 300th most popular comedy podcast in the United States, folks? Wait, wait, in the United States? Yes. No, when you texted me, we were the 230th in and South I Africa. And I also said <gasps> the 300th what? in the United States. What? I didn't know that. Yes. Oh, my God. Yeah, so we're the 300th in the United yes. States for last week. It changes every week. Okay. So last week, we were the 300th in and the now United we're dropped States. Off. I don't know. It won't come out for a few more days. Okay. And like 224th in South Africa. Okay. So I was over at Kyla and Jay's house. This yeah. Week, and, you know, we're just talking about how the week's going. And I was like, hey, here's this for funny news. And I started telling them, like, yeah. and, you know, Kyla gets just as excited as I do. So I'm like, you know, they do rankings in iTunes. And she's like, uh-huh. And I was like, <laughs> and, you know, they do the categories like comedy. Uh-huh. And I was like, so Brandy and I are the 230th. And she's like, she's like already jumping yeah. up and down. And then I was like. In comedy in South Africa. <laughs> we are ready for our world tour. Love it. For the five people in South Africa who are who listening. Who are listening. Thank you, South Africans. Americans, get on it. Come on. Yeah. Let's. Yeah. 300. <laughs> we should be at least 289. At least. Easy. Okay. Anyway, I guess I should get back to this. 
So Shannon has this lifelong dream of being famous. And when he found John's foot in that smoker grill, he was like, this is it. This is, you know, here's my destiny. It's all tied up in this foot. Yeah. The story got a lot of media attention, obviously, because it was crazy. So Shannon got to be on TV. He got to be on the local radio. He started thinking, hey, this is a money and fame making opportunity. For yeah. Me. He started making plans about how he was going to display the foot. He made a sign that said, BBQ foot smoker. Oh, with a little arrow pointing toward his house. And when I say he made a sign, I mean, like, literally, it was like paper, pencil. Yeah, he didn't, like, have a sign made. No. Excellent. No. He planned to charge kids $1 to see it and adults $3. Excellent. How do you feel about those rates? Pretty fair rates, I feel like. (laughs) I'd pay three bucks to see a foot. You totally would. I 100% would. I would pay three bucks just to talk to this guy. I mean, he... When I read the synopsis for this documentary, mm-hmm. I thought, oh, my God, this is like good versus evil. Yeah. But I really felt... You felt like sh- it's good versus good? No, not... It's more like weird versus weird. Because <laughs> <laughs> I kind of felt... I Well, anyway, we'll get into it later. Uh- <laughs> so he makes him... Gets a personalized license plate. It says... Foot guy? Foot smoker. <laughs> he has t-shirts made. Um, one said, I am friends with the footman, and it had a picture of Shannon's face on it with like two severed feet on either side of it. Oh, God. He had another set of t-shirts made that said, foot smoker BBQ grill. And it had a picture of a severed leg on a grill. Excellent. <laughs> Do you want one? Yes. I'm sorry, you can only wear gaming historian t-shirts. <laughs> That's part of our contract here. That's right. So this was supposed to be his big break that he'd been waiting for all his life. There were a couple big problems. Number one, the funeral home. They were being real dicks. They weren't giving the (laughs) foot back. And number two, John said he wanted his foot back. What's up? You got a family of elves over there? I've got so many fun things (laughs) in this house. You guys, Christmas has exploded in my I home. I love it. I love them. Look, and Santa, Santa and his elves. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I love it. I'm glad someone appreciates all this stuff. I appreciate it so much. When Norman walked downstairs, he didn't know that I'd been putting up Christmas stuff. Yeah. He walked downstairs and he goes, oh, God. Oh God. <laughs> he was like, it looks like you're trying to sell people Christmas stuff in here. This looks like a store. No. So then I tried to sell him some stuff. I was like, it's $3 to see all this. For five, I'll throw in a severed foot. (laughs) Blah, blah, blah. John said he wanted his foot back. But to Shannon, it was like, okay, well, too bad, so sad. I bought it fair and square. Mine fair and square. He was like, you must be confused. I have the receipt. Finders keepers, losers weepers, goodbye. And oh, by the way, if you really cared that much about the severed leg, then maybe you should have paid the bill on your storage unit. So there, meh, meh, meh. (laughs) Also, I did not include this in the story, but they said that Shannon and John hadn't met before this all happened. But in a town this small, 
they obviously knew of each other, or at yeah. least Shannon knew of John. Uh-huh. And they have this this part in the documentary where, where Shannon is like, you know, everyone in town, if you were anybody, you had your birthday party at John Wood's house. If you were anybody, you had your party there. Well, Did I they guess not I let wasn't. Him? No. Oh, no. he never had a party at John Wood's house. See, that's the whole thing. I I think, Woo. yeah, there's there was some bitterness like, yeah, that John didn't pissed. even know about. Yeah, yeah. Woo. So he never got to have a skating party in that basement. No, he didn't. Probably didn't even get invited. Probably not. Bad person to get a hold of your foot. That is rough. So this thing's getting a bunch of media attention. So John rides back home on his motorcycle from South Carolina. And he tells the media, meet me in the Dollar General parking lot. What the fuck? Why is why are all of your stories meet in a parking lot of a <laughs> of a Chick-fil-A, uh Joe's Crab Shack? Okay. Uh in some of these other stories, I have no excuse. In this one, I'm gonna guess in a town this small, it's like there are only so many places you can go. That's probably true. But I will say, John's sister and brother-in-law were telling this story for the documentary, and they were, like, cracking up. They're like, the freaking Dollar General. Nah. Like, it's just so embarrassing. <laughs> but, yeah, that's where he had his, like, oh news conference. Gosh. He was like, you guys, I'm going to read a statement. Not like, let's meet at the courthouse. Nope. <laughs> let's meet at the Dollar General. Okay. Because I believe the Dollar General was across the street from the funeral home. Uh-huh. So, I don't know, proximity to the foot. I don't know what. Maybe he just needed some. Maybe he needed, maybe some he needed to pick up some paper towels when mm-hmm. he was there. So he starts reading this statement, and apparently, someone in the media let Shannon know, "Hey, John's going to be reading a statement at the Dollar General." Mm-hmm. So Shannon shows up. He's got his shades on. He is like pissed. He's like staring John down. Mm. So John just explains he wanted his leg back. He didn't want it to be part of some tourist attraction. And he's standing there saying all this. Meanwhile, Shannon is just glaring at him. God. And by the way, Shannon is a big dude. Like, kind of like that lady was glaring at me earlier. Um, yeah. Do you want to tell people about yeah. how you were intimidated? Guys, so I pull up here to Kristen's house today mm-hmm. and my parking spot. I have a regular parking spot that I park in every week. Yeah. Yeah. It's my parking spot. Well, this bitch is in it. <laughs> And so I have to park in front of the neighbor's house. Well, there's this lady standing in front of the neighbor's house. Apparently the bitch that took my parking spot, as it Mm -hmm. turns out. Mm -hmm. She's standing in front of the neighbor's house and she's like staring at the house and staring at her phone, like going back and forth. And then she sees me pull up. And so now guess who she's staring at? Me. And she is like mean mugging me hard. And so I'm like gathering my stuff up out of the car. I got my computer and my water and all of that. And and so she's like watching me. She watches me get out of my car. She watches me as I walk across <laughs> like the sidewalk to Kristen's house. She watches me wait on Kristen's porch for her to come <laughs> to the door. I was like, what the hell? I was like, when Kristen opened the door, I was like, thank God, get me out of here. Yeah, like, you get were, me inside. Yeah. <laughs> she was giving you such a scary look. That I got scared just watching her through the window. I know. I don't know what she's... I don't know what... I feel like she's still in her car out there. Did she leave finally? Yeah, she's gone. Thank goodness. Oof. Yikes. You know who she thought I was. A smooth criminal. Smooth, clearly. <laughs> okay, so he's glaring. He's glaring. So this was their first meeting. Oh my gosh. 
At this point in time, neither one of them has the foot. It's still at the funeral home. Uh So they're in front of the media, and they are pissed. Afterward, when the media left, Shannon said to John, hey, let's talk. So what they actually said to each other during this meeting is super unclear, because, of Mm -hmm. course, one guy has one story, one guy has the other story. So Shannon says that he told John, let's work together. We can make some quick cash together, and hey, maybe we can split custody of the foot. What? And he says John agreed to that. Mm Mm-hmm. But John was like, no, no way did I ever make a deal with Shannon. That's insane. I don't want this to be part of a tourist attraction. I don't, this is not a money-making thing. This is supposed to be a memorial for my dad. No, 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 no. Yeah. At any rate, after the conversation outside the Dollar General, Shannon walks away thinking that they've made this deal together to make some money. But John tells the media, no way, that's not what this is about. And that made Shannon so fucking angry. He said, Ask anybody who's ever pissed me off. You'll find out I don't fuck around. I do not fuck around. Wow! (laughs) Whoa! He starts going on radio shows. He's talking shit about John. He's like, I guess he was born with a silver crack pipe in his mouth. (laughs) (laughs) Holy shit! Kind of a low blow. Real low blow. Then he started talking shit about John's dad. Oh, no. Uh -uh. Uh-uh. Off limits. Not cool. Yep. He was implying that he was some kind of like hillbilly pilot. They'd been basically flying around in a beer can that day. Oh, my gosh. Not cool. At some point in all of this, John got the leg back from the funeral home. Word got out. Shannon was angrier than he'd ever been before. So he said, Let's go to court. (laughs) Small claims court. (laughs) So word of the lawsuit spread like wildfire because... Up until this point, it's my understanding, this had been kind of like a quirky local story, but now it was international news. So, and it kind of presented an interesting legal question. Who is the rightful owner of that foot? Yeah. So now John and Shannon are getting their 15 minutes of fame, and Shannon is loving it. He's thrilled. But John hasn't shown the leg to the media because it's a private thing again he's not in it to make money and that's when he and Shannon both get invited to go on the Johannes B. Kerner show it's a German late night show so they get flown out big fan (laughs) yeah what's your favorite episode the one where they brought the severed foot on yeah well it's a classic I've never heard of this show before no neither had I (laughs) they described it as like uh, the German letterman or whatever yeah So they go. John took his drug dealer with him. His sister was pissed because, you know, the mom had cut him out. Yeah. The sister was going over to his house, doing his laundry, cleaning up, giving him money she didn't have to spare. And, you know, she would have liked to go to Europe. Well, yeah. But, you know, got to take the drug dealer. So before they start taping, the producers of the show offer John some money to show the leg on TV. Oh, God. And John said no. But then they all go to the green room, and there's, like, champagne and all this great food, and there's liquor, so John starts drinking. Oh, no. And they're like, 
Have what? you reconsidered? Yeah. Yeah. They're like, what if we paid you to come out and just pose for pictures with it? Would you do that? So in that state where he's had a few drinks mm-hmm. and might be on some other stuff, John says yes. It's the grossest. Is it available? I bet it is. So I'm going to describe it as you're Googling. The calf is all yellowy. The foot is kind of red. The toenails are still on, and he did not take good care of those toenails. They're kind of whitish yellow. They're super long. It's disgusting. Okay, what are you Googling? Genius stuff. Finders keepers. Severed foot German talk shows. Oh, no, 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 no. Do um, finders keepers documentary and then foot. Try that. Oh, God, it's the first image that... Oh, gross. Oh, fuck. Holy hell. That is nasty, isn't it? Ooh. Ooh. The toenails really freak me out. I know, they freak me out, too. They're so bright white, and they're very long. They're like talons. Oh, it's a big foot. Yeah. Huh. I gotta close this. Yeah, that's disgusting. Woo! Oh man, folks. <laughs> oh, what it's you bad. It, yeah, it's, it's really bad. bad. So John's family was very upset. They were still trying to grieve, trying to get over this tragedy, and they're like, "The fact that you've done this makes it so much harder. Like, stop it. Stop it." So his sister, who until that point had been, you know, enabling him, yeah. cuts him off. John starts living under a bridge. What? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, the addiction issues really... Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, his mom had stopped mm-hmm. supporting him. His sister stopped. So, you know. Yeah. Run out of people. John's living under the bridge. Shannon still has the lawsuit in the works. He's thrilled with the fact that he got a free trip to Europe. I got to say, Shannon was like, show up to these interviews in like a suit. I mean, he really, he did his best. You know, so he's thrilled about the attention, but he still doesn't have that foot. That's when Shannon gets a phone call. It's from the Judge Mathis show. Oh, God. (gasps) Yeah. The producer said, hey, we heard about your lawsuit. What about instead of going through the traditional legal system, you just bring your case to our show? You know, we have cameras and an audience. And And we'll pay you. Shannon, of course, was like, absolutely. 100%. So that left John. He had to agree to it, too. He thought it over. And one of the things that appealed to him about going on the Judge Mathis show was that the rulings are final. Because his fear with this lawsuit with Shannon was that, you know, let's say he wins. You know Shannon's going to appeal. Yeah. And it's just going to appeal, appeal. It'd be, you know, just years and years and years of this thing tied up. So John said, you know what? I can go on this show. I could be done with Shannon forever. Let's do it. Their episode was the season premiere of the Judge Mathis show. Oh, my gosh. Of course it was. Okay. 
Have you ever watched the Judge? Yeah, Ma- Judge Joe Mathis. Yeah, hundred percent. See, I'm more of a Judge Judy. I mean, yeah, I. But you know, sometimes she's not on. And you got to watch <laughs> Judge Mathis. Maybe his name's not Joe. Is I think Joe? it is Joe. Okay. I think it is. Yeah, I mean, he's good. Yeah, but no one's as good as Judge Judy, Kristen. I will never forget the time she said to a woman. That is not a court dress, madam. Oh, I loved it. She kicked her out because she was in spaghetti straps. Ooh. Oh, oof, oof. Also, I'm the boss, applesauce. <laughs> it's good stuff. <laughs> good stuff. <laughs> so both of them go into this courtroom, mm-hmm. and they're confident. They're both confident that yeah. they're going to win. Uh, <laughs> Shannon was the first to talk. He admitted it was a bizarre case, and again, he's he's dressed nicely. Admitted it's a bizarre case, but said, the leg is mine. I want it back. So Judge Mathis is hamming it up. He's like, you want his leg back? Mm -hmm. And the audience starts laughing. And the judge tells Shannon, step out from behind the podium. Step out. So Shannon does. And the judge looks at him up and down. He goes, you don't need one. (laughs) So then the judge starts looking at pictures of some of the T-shirts that Shannon has made. And he goes, you're just trying to get famous off of this man's leg. Yeah, but I bought it fair and square. Basically. So then the judge turns his attention to John and he starts asking things like, did you receive notice that the storage unit was being auctioned off? What did you do when you got that notice? Meanwhile, John's eyes are like as big as saucers. It's clear he's messed up on something. But he did admit that he got notice that the storage unit was being auctioned off. But he was like, oh, it was like five days. You know, I was down in South Carolina. And even though he was clearly messed up, he was a little funny. Mm -hmm. (laughs) He said, I've had this leg for 42 years and I'm still trying to keep up with it. (laughs) In his Closing remarks, Shannon said, well, as the auction man said before he started, all sales are final. And at this point, everyone starts laughing, even Mm -hmm. though Shannon is very serious. Yeah. (laughs) So I'm going to pause right here. What are your thoughts on this? I think that Shannon owns the foot. Yeah. I do, too. I think that the ownership rights... Transferred when he bought that storage unit. One of the things that Shannon said was like, if you if you buy like a mattress and it turns out there's money in it, you know, the the person can't go after you for it. You bought it fair and square. Yeah, I think he bought it fair and square. Yeah. What do you think Judge Joe Mathis did? I don't know. So, you know, Shannon says this thing about, you know, all sales are final. It's mine. And Judge Mathis goes, quite frankly, you're right, sir. I am going to grant you a monetary judgment, but you're not getting that leg. I'm not giving you the man's leg. So I think maybe just because, like, because of what it is, you know. So he awarded Shannon $5,000. Immediately after the taping, a lot of people wanted to take Shannon's picture. And in the documentary, he got so worked up about how wonderful that was that he started crying. Oh, this my god! He was just, like, so, so happy in that moment. Yeah. Meanwhile, John got his leg back, but he was still homeless, still addicted. Yeah. And that's when something kind of incredible happened. 
The producers at the Judge Mathis show and Judge Mathis himself recognized that John had a problem. So they got him into a rehab center in Atlanta, like a really nice rehab center. Holy shit. So he went and he did really well. Like for the first time ever, he started dealing with all the guilt he had over this plane crash. He decided that, you know, I still want to do that memorial to my dad using my severed leg. But I never envisioned still having the flesh on my leg. So I, I really just want to get down to the skeletal yeah. remains. So he starts looking into it. He finds out it's going to be like $15,000 to get the flesh stripped away. Can you just boil it? That's okay. Here's the thing. I was surprised by that too because I was thinking, these are like outdoorsy DIY folks. Surely, I I don't know. But oh God, can you imagine? I mean, it wouldn't smell great, but you boil it long enough and that skin's going to fall right away. Just fall right off the bone. John, if you're listening, (laughs) take notes. So... He realizes, that's that's my goal. Can't afford to do it. But on the day that that Judge Mathis episode aired, a forensic veterinarian named Katie Wilk was watching the show. Mm-hmm. And on the show, John talked about what he wanted to do with that leg. And she was like, wow, um, I have the exact skills that could help yeah. with that. I've never applied them to actually like helping somebody. Right. But I'd like to. Yeah. So she reaches out to John and she's like, I want to help you and I'll do it for free. Oh, my gosh. So things start getting better for John, but things went downhill for Shannon. Shannon got cast in the reality TV show Dukes of Haggle, which I'd never heard of. I've never heard of it. But they showed a clip of it in the documentary. And it got weird because Shannon was super excited. He was thinking like, oh, my God, this is my big break. You know, it's mm-hmm. so exciting. But then, like, once they actually started filming, it was clear he was the butt of the joke. So they're just making fun of him. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, at one point, they have this auction where he's auctioning off a leg lamp. And he's really jacked up and really excited. But people are laughing at him. Mm-hmm. And the guy who buys it, like, they do a, a side interview with him. And he's like, no, I just bought it because it's the leg lamp from the Christmas movie. It's iconic. It's cool. And so, like, the guy buys it. And Shannon is like, do you want me to autograph that for you? And the guy's like, no. Ugh, so that it was, sucks. Yeah. I don't like that. No. And so Shannon got embarrassed, mm-hmm. got really upset, but he went along with it. I think just because like he wanted it so bad. Yeah. So where are they now? John is sober. He's working on making amends with his family. He still hasn't finished the memorial as he envisioned. So Katie did what she could, but it wasn't quite what he wanted. Mm -hmm. But he basically decided in the end, the best memorial to my dad is just to live well and be sober. Which I'm so glad because who who cares about that fucking foot? Like, yeah. Oh, my God. John's sister said, in some ways, I'd like to thank Shannon for being the douche that he is. Because in a way, it was a catalyst. Because they were saying like, any other person in this situation would have just given the leg back. Mm-hmm. But Shannon was like the one person who'd be like, no, I'm keeping this human severed leg and I'm going to make a tourist attraction out of it. Mm-hmm. And because of all that, John was able to go to this amazing rehab center right. and get his life together. Yeah, uh, John got married in 2014, but Shannon continued to struggle. He and his wife were talking about divorce 
In 2016, he announced that he was running for president. What? Which, I mean... Shannon. Uh, then in November of that year, he died at the age of 42 from oh. a heart attack. Oh, that's sad. Yeah. So that's the story. I. The thing that was so weird about this is there were a couple people in the documentary who I felt like you were supposed to have certain feelings about, or it, it seemed natural that you would really not like Shannon. I felt so bad for yeah. him, though. Yeah. Because he really was funny. I mean, he was kind of an ass, mm-hmm. well, a super ass. Yeah. But they gave you enough of his backstory about his bad relationship with his dad mm-hmm. that you kind of felt like, God, I just, like, I wanted the guy to get a YouTube show and I wanted it to take off. Yeah. And then this morning I was like, I wonder what, what he's up to now. I was like, oh. Oh, great. He died. Yeah. Thank you for ending on that high note for I know. They also, like, the other person who they kind of focused on was John's mom. Uh Because the kids were upset because, like, they never had a funeral for their dad. They never had a memorial service. Mm -hmm. She had him cremated. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he's just in a box, which they were very, very bothered by that. Mm -hmm. But then they started talking about their marriage and how he had basically treated her like an employee, had cheated on her, Mm -hmm. and she just, you know, I... I didn't think she was so bad either. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Real. You really root for the underdogs, Kristen. I think I do. <laughs> I mean, they, like, she was definitely cold. Yeah. Um, and they <laughs> talked about how, like, you know, who can just turn their son out like that? But I, I don't know. When someone's got an addiction like that and they're. Well, yeah. I yeah. Mean, at some point, you have to. You can't enable somebody forever. Yeah. Or he would have just died of a drug overdose. Yeah. What you have to do is, like, have someone buy his severed foot. That's right. And go on Judge Joe Mathis. Exactly. That's how you help people through their addictions. 100%. <laughs> this is a foolproof method. <laughs> I loved that. Did you? Yes. I felt like I was kind of cheating with Judge Joe Mathis. No, it's a court. Okay. You know, I honestly had this moment of, like, I can't do it because it's Judge Joe Mathis. Why? But, well, and then I thought, wait, this is our podcast. It's our fucking podcast. We can do whatever we want. <laughs> hey, come at me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to get that lady outside to come at you. She would have. She would. She was scary. I'm still scared a little bit. <laughs> you should be. She was terrifying. She was terrifying. And what was with her hair? I don't know. I was thinking maybe it was just she'd been out there for like days or something. Uh, she looked like she'd been in a stakeout <laughs> of some sort. Are you ready? I believe I am. To talk about a strangler. Oh, God. The Tyneside Strangler. Ever what heard is of, that? Ever no. heard of them? No. Should I have? I don't know. <laughs> I bet in like roughly one hour I will have heard I everything I need I to hear. I bet in about two minutes you'll know whether or not you know the case. Okay. I've done a little bit of trickery calling it that. Really? Hmm. Hmm. Didn't want to give it away right from the get-go. I see. I looked up the most obscure nickname for the case. <laughs> so is it the Boston Strangler? But like, No. Oh, oh, excuse me. Nice try. Thank you. I I'm that obvious. <laughs> Pat Howe was worried 
It was late afternoon on July 31st, 1968, and her three-year-old brother Brian had not yet come home. In the economically challenged Scottswood neighborhood of Newcastle-upon-Tyne, England, it was common for children, and toddlers apparently, to play in the dilapidated houses and construction sites that peppered the community. A three-year-old? Yeah, is that not nuts? Yes, that's crazy. But they just talk about it in this case, like it was just happening all the time, just three-year-olds out there wandering around. Oh, geez, my three-year-old isn't home I mean, yet. it's 1968, so it is no, a different time. Not but that different. I think it is. I think my dad told me. So my dad was born in 1963, so he would have been five okay. in 1968. This actually would have been his fifth birthday, Oh. July 31st would have been his fifth birthday. Okay. 1968. He told me when he was five, he used to walk to the movie theater. What? Yeah. Okay. I swear he time. told me that. It was so a different time. So maybe I'm making up his age. I don't think I am. I think it was just a different time. Ugh. Okay. Okay. So three-year-olds are just, <laughs> I don't know, living their best lives, I guess, doing whatever the fuck they want. But Pat's worried because Brian knew to play within view of their house, and he knew when he was expected home. Not that he knew how to fucking tell time at three. I was going to say, I'm lost, but okay. (laughs) But she was also worried because just a couple of months earlier, on May 25th, a four-year-old boy named Martin Brown had been found dead inside a condemned house. Though police had been unable to determine his cause of death, it was believed at the time to be a tragic accident. (sighs) He was just out playing in this house. Fucking four-year-old. Yeah, so (laughs) I guess we'll just continue (laughs) to let our children do that. Okay. But in the back of her mind, Pat began to wonder if something horrible had happened to Brian, too. And this is her brother, right? Yeah. Okay, gotcha. So Pat's going up and down the street. She's calling for Brian. She's looking everywhere for him when she comes upon 11-year-old Mary Bell and her best friend, 13-year-old Norma Bell. No relation. Okay. And Mary's like, oh, are you looking for your brother Brian? And Pat's like, "Uh, yeah, that's why I've been fucking calling his name up and down the street for the last half hour. Have you seen him? Mary and Norma told Pat that they hadn't seen Brian that day, but they offered to help her in her search of the neighborhood for them, for him. So the three girls joined forces searching high and low for young Brian. Eventually, their search led them across the railroad tracks to an industrial area where children often played. Oh, my God. Kristen, you're <laughs> losing it over this. This, this is insane. <laughs> Kristen, it's 1968. <laughs> It was not that long ago. The parents were smoking pot, like wearing macrame vests. They couldn't be bothered. Oh my gosh. (laughs) So they go across the railroad tracks to this railroad tracks to this industrial area. Um, This area was home to discarded construction materials, old cars, general junk. Things that made the perfect climbing structures for the kids uh, in Scottswood. So they're looking at this construction area slash jungle gym. <laughs> Basically, I'm picturing like a junkyard yes, in my mind. That's exactly what this sounds like. And Mary pointed to a stack of large cement blocks and was like, maybe he's over there. That looks like a fun place to play. Maybe he's behind him or something. But almost immediately, Norma chimed in and was like, oh, no. 
Brian hates the blocks. He'd never play on the blocks. He must be somewhere else. And with that, the girls crossed back over the railroad tracks and Pat headed toward home to let her parents know that Brian was missing. Except he wasn't missing at all. The fair-headed three-year-old boy was... The fair-haired three-year-old boy was, in fact, behind the large cement blocks. But he wasn't playing. He was, was he dead. dead? He was dead. Police found Brian Howe's body at 1110 that night during an in-depth search of the neighborhood. He'd been strangled to death. Oh. The letter M had been carved into his stomach. Oh, my God. Clumps of hair had been cut. And his penis had been partially <gasps> skinned. What the fuck? A pair of broken scissors were found near his tiny body. Oh. With the discovery of Brian's body came full-on panic in Scottswood. Who would do this to a little boy? And what about Martin? Was his accident really the work of the same killer? Was there a strangler on the loose in Scottswood upon Tyne? Scottswood, Newcastle upon Tyne, actually. I don't know how these fucking... English city names work. Well, I'm going to be really mad if you mess them up in any way. So my understanding, so I tried to look this up so I could sound like pretty knowledgeable, but Uh I've already ruined that. So Scottswood is like the town and then like Newcastle is like the city and it's called upon time because that's the nearest river. Okay. It sounds, it sounds made up. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) My understanding of what I put together. Okay. Police flooded the town as they began the investigation into this heinous murder. But the investigation was unusual from the get-go. Something about the way the body was found led investigators to believe that a child was responsible for Brian's death. Oh, come on. Inspector James Dobson described the crime scene as terrifyingly playful. There was a gentleness in the way Brian had been killed. He was strangled or asphyxiated, Yet there was no bruising on his neck. And the letter on his stomach had been cut with such light pressure that it actually took a couple of days for it to appear. Oh, God. Yeah. And so they began the investigation by interviewing all of the children in the neighborhood between the age of three and 15. They thought a three-year-old could have done this? I don't know that they thought a three-year-old could have done it. But maybe but would know something. Maybe a three-year-old saw anything. How do you even go about interviewing a three-year-old? I don't know. I mean, I don't think they should be out in a junkyard <laughs> to begin with. But, you know, what do I know? Quickly, two girls' behavior stood out to investigators as suspicious. They were Mary and Norma Bell. No. Oh, my God. Fucked up. Oh, no. Norma seemed excited by the murder and the investigation. Oh, jeez. One investigator recalled that she was constantly smiling and laughing, as if the whole thing were a big joke. In contrast, Mary took it very seriously, to the point that she was reluctant to answer questions and was evasive. Investigators kept coming back to Mary, asking more questions, digging for more details, Until one day, she suddenly remembered something. Mary was like, oh, yes, yes, I remember. 
on the day that Brian died, I saw Rupert Brimble, which is Poor not kid. That's not his real name. I made it up because oh. they didn't give the name. She did name a specific boy. And you made up the name Rupert Brimble? Yeah, I wanted to like get a really British sounding <laughs> name. <laughs> so she didn't they she did actually say a specific eight-year-old boy. So we're pretending his name is Rupert Brimble. So she's like, I saw Rupert Brimble playing with Brian. Let's just keep in mind, Rupert Brimble, eight years old, Brian, three years old. Yeah, not playing. Probably not. They were over there by the big cement blocks, and you aren't going to believe this, but I saw Rupert push Brian off the blocks. Mm-hmm. I also saw Rupert playing with some scissors. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. They were like silver scissors, only they were like, they were kind of broken. Like one of the legs on them was bent or the tip was broken wow, off or something. she saw a lot. So, yeah, I think Rupert Brimble's your guy. Police were like, great. Thanks, Mary. You've been a big help. Mm-hmm. Only there were two problems with Mary's statement. First... Rupert Brimble was at the airport at the time of Brian's oh. murder. Oh. And second, that little thing about the broken scissors being found next to Brian's body, they hadn't released that to the public. <gasps> Ooh. Mary had implicated herself. While police weren't sure that Mary had done the actual killing, they were sure that she and Norma had been present when Brian died. Mm -hmm. And they were pretty sure that one of them was the killer. So they put the two girls under surveillance. So remember, this is an 11-year-old girl and a 13-year-old girl. Yeah. In the meantime, investigators brought Norma in for another interview. This time, Norma didn't think it was funny. She wasn't laughing anymore. She was very serious. Hmm. And she told them everything she knew. She said that Mary had killed Brian and had brought her to the blocks afterwards to show her his body. She said Mary told her that she killed him by squeezing his neck and pushing on his lungs. Then she told Norma not to tell anyone. Norma said it was clear when she saw Brian that he was dead. His lips were blue and Mary kept running her fingers over them. Ew. Norma said Mary told her she enjoyed killing him. Norma also told detectives that Mary had let had led Pat to the concrete blocks that day when she was looking for Brian because she wanted her to be the one to find Brian's dead body. She wanted to see the look on Pat's face when she got that shock. Oh, my gosh. Disgusting. That little monster. Oh, so police wasted no time. They brought Marion just after midnight that same night after. After Norma made this statement. But if investigators thought that they were going to be dealing with someone who could easily be intimidated under interrogation, they were wrong. Seriously? This little 11-year-old girl. They were no match for an 11-year-old girl? This 11-year-old girl comes in here. And so the detective is like, "Um, I have reason to believe that you were at the blocks with Norma that day. Mm Mm-hmm. A man shouted at some children who were nearby, and you both ran away from where Brian was found laying in the grass. This man will probably know you. He'll be able to identify you. And Mary, this 11-year-old girl who's being interrogated, goes, 
he'd have to have pretty good eyesight. What? And the detective's like, what? Why would he have to have good eyesight? And Mary's like, "Uh, because I was at my house. Oh. Oh. Woo! (laughs) The sassiest murderer of all time. And she said, pretty clever of him to see me when I wasn't there. (gasps) Then she stood up and she was like, I'm out of here. This is ridiculous. I'm not going to make any statements. I've given given you enough already. And you don't believe me anyway. You just believe Norma. And she's a liar, not me. She's she always 45? trying to get me in trouble. Yeah, this girl's 11! Oh my gosh. Yeah, Norma's a liar. She's always trying to get me in trouble. <laughs> Classic Norma. Right. <laughs> it was almost 3.30 in the morning when Mary left the station. And investigators had gotten nowhere with her. The lead investigator began to question himself, second guess himself. Maybe she was telling the truth. Maybe he was looking at the wrong girl. Those doubts and questions would all be squashed soon, though. On the day of Brian Howe's funeral, August 7th, 1968, Mary stood out in front of Brian's house, waiting for the casket to be brought out. When it was, she stood there, laughing and wringing her hands giddily. So she's what? like laughing and like Mr. Burnsing her hands. The detective was there. He saw it all and what it was all the? he needed to see. He was like, this is it. Mary is the killer. No question about it. But he also knew that he couldn't wait much longer to arrest her or she would harm someone else. And he didn't believe that Brian was the first victim of hers. No. No, of course not. So Mary Bell was brought in for more questioning shortly after Brian's funeral. This time, she gave an official signed statement where she attempted to place most of the blame on her best friend, Norma. She admitted to being present for the murder, but claimed it was all Norma's doing. She said Norma had lured Brian behind the big blocks with a promise of sweets, and then when he got there, she grabbed him by the throat And then massaged and squeezed it until he stopped breathing. Oh, God. So the lead detective saw her statement as a thinly veiled attempt to cast the blame onto Norma. But he thought that she knew too many details. She knew too much for it to not be true. Yeah. Like for it to be. She she had firsthand knowledge of how this kid was killed. Not just she witnessed it. He was like, "Mm -mm, I'm not believing it. You're the murderer. So as soon as she entered that signed statement, he placed her under arrest and charged her with the murder of Brian Howe. And Mary Bell was like, that's all right with me. And like shrugged it off as if it was some bit of inconsequential news. Not that she'd just been charged with murder. Oh, my gosh. They also arrested Norma. Uh Because they weren't sure that she wasn't involved. They were pretty sure that the two had worked together. Right. So they bring Norma in. They arrest her and charge her with the murder of Brian Howe. And she, like, freaks the fuck out. She's like, oh, I never. Oh, my goodness. I could not have had part in this. And then she, like, gets mad. And she's like, I will pay you back for this. She says this to who? The detective who charges her with murder. Okay. 
So now that Mary and Norma were in custody, the detective decided that he better take a better look at the suspicious death of Martin Brown that had taken place just Uh weeks earlier. Now, remember, his cause of death had been undetermined, but his death was believed to be just some kind of accident. Yeah. But the detective wasn't so sure now. And what he uncovered in his investigation was shocking. Had anyone acted on any of the things that had gone on after Martin's death, Brian would probably still be alive. Four-year-old Martin had last been seen at 3.15 on May 25th, and his body was found by 3.30. So just like 15 minutes. that's nothing. Yeah. He was found dead in a boarded-up abandoned house that was in ill repair. And guess who just happened to be nearby when the body was located? Why, Mary and Norma, of course. Police had found no signs of violence when they found the body, but they did find an empty aspirin bottle nearby. So they thought perhaps he had taken them all or -hmm. something. With not a mark on the body, the criminal investigation unit wasn't even called in, and the death was ruled accidental. So they look at the body and they're like, well, it doesn't look like anybody killed this kid. So he must have taken those pills. In that yeah. But remember, this is a four-year-old. Yeah. A four-year-old's going to take a bottle of pills? Maybe. Yeah. I mean, you hear about stories about kids going to the emergency room because they got right. into some medicine. I guess that's so, true. I mean, it's, it's possible. possible. And this was a different time, so they didn't have child safety. That's true. That bottles. is true. But in the days after Martin's death, Mary's behavior grew increasingly odd. She told Norma that she had killed Martin by massaging his neck. And even declared on the playground at school, I am a murderer. Oh, my God. But her claims were laughed off. Yeah. Then Mary and Norma began pestering Martin's family. They would knock on... Martin's aunt's door constantly and ask her repeatedly if she missed Martin, if she cried for Martin. Like, oh my God, like several times a day, like all these questions. But again, this was just brushed off as odd behavior by young girls who were struggling with the loss of a kid in their neighborhood. Oh my gosh. Then one day, ugh. Mary went to Martin's mother's house. And when she answered the door, Mary asked to see Martin. So June, Martin's mother, smiled sweetly and said, No, pet, I'm sorry. Martin's not here. Martin's dead. Mm -hmm. And Mary goes, Oh, yeah, I know he's dead. I want to see him in his coffin. Oh, my God. Oh, Oh, this is so messed up. This is so gross. Yeah. So June's smile dropped immediately. She was speechless. She slammed the door in Mary's face. But again, this behavior was written off as poor behavior by an unsupervised girl. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, God, that is so creepy. So creepy. Oh, no, I know he's dead. I just want to see his body in the coffin. And then there was the vandalized nursery school. A couple of days after Martin's death, the workers at a nursery school in the neighborhood came in to find that the place had been ransacked and four notes had been left behind. They read, 
I murder so that I may come back. Fuck off. We murder. So watch out. We did murder Martin Brown. Fuck off, you bastard. Wow. You are mice. Why? Because we murdered Martin Brown. You better look out. There are murderers about. So the police were called in and the police took in the notes as evidence. But again, they wrote it off as a sick joke. It wasn't taken seriously. Oh, well, okay. This stuff's adding up. I'm starting to think I, yeah, maybe they definitely uh, adding up. Like, they overlook too yeah, much. Maybe each individual case is not enough to think maybe there's something weird here, but you got to take all this stuff together. Yeah. That same day, Mary drew a picture of a body in her school notebook. Good grief. It was drawn in the same position which Martin had been found, and there was a bottle of aspirin drawn next to it. Mary's teacher didn't seem to find anything odd at all about the drawing. <laughs> Just totally normal stuff the kids draw, Kristen. Okay, but some kids do draw weird things. Yeah. Um... But, but yeah, just like the exact position of a body that was just found a couple days before. Did the teacher? Well, yeah, they're in a small community. Yeah, yeah, that's okay. I'm I'm out of excuses for these adults. <laughs> I tried. I'm tapping out here. After all of these discoveries by the detective, he knew that Mary and Norma had to be involved. With the murder of Martin Brown. No shit. They were charged with his murder as well. Their trial began December 5th, 1968 and lasted nine days. Were they tried together? They were tried together. Okay. Um, media attention grew throughout the trial. And by the last day, the courtroom was filled with press. So all the articles about this say, like, this is was nothing in comparison to, like, what a media spectacle is now mm-hmm. in, in cases like this. But it was unheard of at the yeah, time. Just, yeah. The room was just filled with press from all over. Prosecutor Rudolph Lyons opened the trial by recounting all of the suspicious behavior the girls had exhibited since the discovery of Martin's body. He said that whoever had killed Brian Howe had without a doubt also killed Martin Brown. And he pointed out that those murderers were there in the courtroom. A handwriting expert testified that the notes left at the nursery were penned by both Mary and Norma. They alternated lines in the notes. Yeah, so they were both involved in the writing of every note. Specifically, the line, I murder because I come back, or I murder to come back. Yeah. I murder so that I may come back, Mm -hmm. was written in Norma's handwriting. This is a little bit of a big reveal at trial because it was really believed at this point that Norma had very little involvement and Mary was by far the ringleader. Right. But a weird thing for someone to write who was claiming to have no involvement at all. Yeah. So there was quite a bit of evidence implicating Mary. She had explained exactly how the boys had been murdered, something the prosecution pointed out repeatedly at trial and something they asked her about directly when she took the stand. And Mary was composed. She handled the questioning well. 
She explained that everything she knew about the deaths of the boys were just rumors that she heard around town and that they just happened to be true. Oh. But in addition to all the knowledge that she had, fibers from that matched her dress were found on both of the bodies. She had Mm -hmm. two different dresses that they were able to like match wool fibers from that were found on the clothing of the boys. Yeah. Norma also took the stand in her own defense, and she swore that she had nothing to do with the murders. In fact, both girls denied any responsibility for the murder of Martin, but both admitted they had been with Brian on the day he died, and each blamed the other for his murder. Norma described in great detail how Mary had told Brian to lay down on the grass and then had squeezed and massaged his throat and pinched his nose until he turned blue and died. Mary's defense, without taking responsibility for either murder, did offer an explanation as to her odd and morbid behavior around the murders, like asking to see the bodies and all Mm -hmm. that. Mary was a psychopath. Clean and simple. Clean and simple? Clear and simple? Plain and simple? Plain and simple? Mary was a psychopath. (laughs) Plain and simple. You know, that phrase that everybody says. (laughs) And by no fault of her own, she'd had a terrible childhood where her mother was a prostitute. She didn't know who her father was, and she'd been sexually abused from the age of four by her mother's clients. None of this surprises me. Not in the least. Yeah, you would have to have been Mm -hmm. so messed up from such a young age to do that. She was also a chronic bedwetter, which backs up the... Sexual abuse story, very common uh, effect of a child who's suffering sexual abuse. And when her mother would find out that she'd wet the bed, she would rub her her face in it. And then she'd hang the mattress out of Mary's bedroom window for everyone to see. see. Oh, God. Terrible. So... As as the closing arguments neared, the judge explained to the jury that if they chose to believe Mary's defense that she was a psychopath, but still believed that she might have some responsibility in these murders, they would need to consider the possibility of diminished responsibility. Mm-hmm. The judge explained this concept to the jury. So in 1957, there was an act of parliament, and it said... That where a person kills or is a party to the killing of another, he shall not be convicted of murder if he was suffering from such an abnormality of the mind as to substantially impair his mental stability for his acts. Right. So basically he's saying if the jury believes the defense, if they think, yes, Mary's a psychopath and that she's a psychopath because of this and this and this that happened to her Mm -hmm. in her childhood. But yes, we also believe that she murdered these two boys. They can find her guilty of a lesser charge by reason of diminished responsibility. Yeah, so basically insanity, right? Basically. Yeah, okay. Not a, not entirely the same as... Right. Because it's not finding her not guilty. Right, right. So in closing arguments, the prosecution painted Mary as a fiend and Norma as her willing accomplice. 
The prosecutor said, in Norma, you have a simple, backward girl of subnormal intelligence. In Mary, you have a most abnormal child, aggressive, vicious, cruel, incapable of remorse. A girl, moreover, possessed of a dominating personality with a somewhat unusual intelligence and a degree of cunning that is almost terrifying. In an attempt to kind of save Mary from being cast off as a bad seed, the defense posed a broader question. Why did this happen? Mm -hmm. What made Mary do it? It is very easy to revile a little girl without pausing for a moment to ponder how the whole sorry situation has come about. And so he's like asking the jury, like, Okay, basically, look at, look basically at we're conceding through. at this point. Like, obviously, she's going to be found guilty. Yeah. But look at what she's been through. Yeah. And I think that's fair. I do, too. The jury, uh, made up of five women and seven men, took under four hours to return a verdict. What's your, what's your guess for Norma and Mary? Hmm. Norma's guilty. Mary is guilty by reason of diminished capacity, diminished responsibility. Diminished responsibility. Okay. Norma was found not guilty. What? Mm-hmm. Wow. And Mary Bell was found guilty of manslaughter due to okay. diminished capacity, okay. diminished responsibility for both Martin and Brian's deaths. Um, she was sentenced to detention for life. What's that mean? It means that she can be um, held for an undetermined amount of time. In like a psychiatric facility? No, in, or? A, in a prison. Oh, so she had a life sentence. A okay, life sentence, gotcha, basically, gotcha. yes. Norma Bell was, was given three years probation for breaking and entering to the nursery school. She was found guilty of that. In a separate, they actually charged her with that separately. She really got off easy. Uh, Yeah, I think she got off really easy. But they seem to really believe that she was of a lower intelligence level than Mary and that Mary had manipulated her to be involved in these two murders. Okay. Do you think that's not possible? Oh, it's definitely possible to be manipulated Mm -hmm. and stuff like that. But I just, I'm, gosh, I'm just surprised. Mm -hmm. They said in a bunch of stuff that I read that like, while Mary was younger, Norma was two years older than her. Mary was by far the more mature one. Oh, well, you can tell by the way she talked to the police. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Yeah. So Mary's sentenced to life, and she's an 11-year-old girl. Oh, gosh. They have nowhere to put her. Oh. They can't put her in a regular prison. They don't have a women's children's prison. So they sent her to an all-boys reform school. Oh, no. Yeah. Oh. Where she continued to be sexually abused over the next several years. Oh, my God. Yeah. Do you want to guess? So she's been released. Do you want to guess how many years she served before she was released? Oh, God. 15? What? Close. 
I was doing math. Oh, okay. Sorry. I was like, <laughs> close. 12 years. Okay. She served 12 years before she was released. And then she was granted anonymity. They gave her a new identity. Wow. They gave her a new identity and that also protection also carried over to any children that she had until they reached the age of 18. And then their identities were no longer protected. Hmm. Why don't they get... So here, that's actually, she ended up having to go back to court for this and ask. Yeah. She had a daughter. She ended up having a daughter, um, I think, in 1984. And actually, so she had she got out in 80. She had a daughter in 84. And it was actually a ward of the state until, like, 1992. They wouldn't let her have sole custody over her child. Oh, uh-huh. and She wasn't deemed. They There was, like, a lot of legal battles over yeah, if yeah. she, if somebody who was a child murderer could have a child and all of this stuff. And so right. until she, though she raised her her whole life, she always had custody of her. She wasn't, she was officially a ward of the state until 1992. That's interesting. I think it's really interesting. Okay. So this daughter's anonymity was only protected until she turned 18. And then Mary had to go back to court and ask that it be extended. And so she did actually, they, the Mary Bell order is specifically like a law that protects them for life. Yeah. So in 1998, a book came out about Mary where she was interviewed and she was paid to be a part of the research for this book and people were pissed about it yeah that she was paid for her story she was going to profit for her story even the prime minister who was tony blair at the time made a big statement about it about how he was they how he was going to work to change laws to make sure that wouldn't happen in the future and they did so there's a big serial killer who uh, i think his name's dennis nelson who was convicted like right around that same time i guess and mm-hmm. they made it for him that he couldn't profit off of his Good. crimes and you stuff shouldn't be oh absolutely so yeah mary's daughter had no idea what who she was until the public found out where they were and found out yeah so when that book came out like the press really became oh. obsessed so that they became obsessed with finding out who mary was they came to her house one day like just somebody rang her doorbell and it was the press and then like all of the reporters came to their house and they had to like leave under like bed sheets and stuff i mean her daughter had no idea who she was until that day that poor daughter yeah so martin's mother Mm-hmm. has said that she doesn't think it's fair that she got to have a new life. Mm. What do you think? I I think she was 11 and she'd been abused on a level that I can't even imagine. Imagine, yeah. And I I think then having to go be in a boy's Oh work, gosh. I mean, that's I mean, I get that they didn't know where to put her, but that was not the right choice. No, no, not at all. Yeah. Yeah. So Mary Bell is the Tyneside Strangler. Wow. What's 11, the more 11 year old, name? Th- there's nowhere by her name, Mary no. Bell. Okay. I don't know that anybody calls her the time. It's like one of her AKAs on Wikipedia. I'd never heard it before. I just okay. heard this <laughs> of the case of Mary Bell. God, <laughs> that was, oh, that was awful. Awful. Yeah. Ooh, thanks for that. No problem. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, 
was that was chilling. Yeah, I just I'm I am with you on the craziness of like just three year old kids wandering yes. around the neighborhood Ugh. just playing. And then I do think she had a terrible life. I mean, I get that. Yeah. Um, it definitely brings up the question of like the nature versus nurture. Like, would she have done this anyway, or was she groomed to be a psychopath? Uh, groomed for yeah. sure. For sure. Yeah. Oh, man, those kids are playing on a trampoline over there. We used to play on the trampoline. You and I both had trampolines growing up. We were hashtag blessed. Yeah. I had the basement that doubled as a skating Skating rink. rink. Yeah. Yeah. Trampolines are the best. Man, they were a good time. I really, there are certain things that I wish it was socially acceptable for adults to have. Mm -hmm. Like, why can't adults have trampolines in their backyard? Let me tell you a super embarrassing story about a trampoline. Did you pee yourself on a trampoline? No, goodness gracious. It happens. I, um, while back was looking to do a workout that might Mm -hmm. be, you know, more fun than just my typical walking. I do a lot of walking, but it gets really boring. And so I was like, let me see if I can, you know, pump up the jam, do something that's (laughs) going to be, you know, more fun. Did you buy one of those mini trampolines? No, I wish that's what I did. Oh, my God. What'd you do? So I'm looking online for, like, alternative workouts. Uh And I find out that Sky Zone, the kids trampoline park right you heard of this place yeah yeah. Yeah, so it's like a place where kids go and there's like all these trampolines they jump all over the place whatever offers sky aerobics an aerobics class on the trampolines that sounds so fun it does sound really fun doesn't it so (laughs) my friend and i go to this Uh uh-huh tasha she's my cousin's wife so we go to this we call it tramper size we're like we're going to tramper size Uh like we get really excited. So we go to this class and somehow it didn't list that there were varying degrees of difficulty on the schedule. Oh, no. Somehow the class we picked was the advanced class and it was like all 16 year old cheerleaders in the class oh working on their jumps. Oh, no. It was horrible. I didn't even, we made it like through the workout and then I was like, excuse me, I'm going to go get some water. And we like, <laughs> Ran out of that place. It was a fucking terrible. That is so embarrassing. <laughs> it was horrible. It was horrible. So basically, uh, I can't go back to Sky Zone. <laughs> so I, it's like literally when I went to go get the water, the guy that was teaching the class, who was also like, I don't know, like a professional yell leader or something, yeah, yeah. was like, okay, but make sure you come back. Like he totally knew what I was doing. Oh, he, he called had me your out. Number, sister. It's terrible. Was he like, what squad are you yeah. on? <laughs> I was like, listen, buddy, I looked up the schedule and didn't say anything about this being an advanced fucking class. Oh, my God. I don't need this girl who can, like, jump and touch the fucking ceiling. Like, it was terrible. Um, Kyla has dragged me to a few classes Mm -hmm. that, first of all, I can't follow choreography. Yeah. I can run. And that's about it. I can't yeah. clap to a beat. I can't do it. So <laughs> I end up looking so stupid in any class I'm at. Here's this one. I won't say the name of it. But basically, I wanted to die halfway through. Not even halfway through. It's just, it's one of those things. You're there for 60 minutes and you're like, if there was a little man who came up to me and was like, hey, 
I'll let you out of here, but you have to run a marathon. You would have. I would have done it. Was it Zumba? No, I would never do Zumba. (laughs) Group classes, turns out, not for me. I need to work out in the privacy of my own home. Yeah. (laughs) What do you do? Do you do, like, videos? Jane Fonda? Maybe. (laughs) I used to love Jane Fonda. (laughs) Yeah, I don't actually do Jane Fonda anymore, but there's, like, all kinds of workout videos on YouTube, and so I just pick one. Oh, I'm sorry. I don't have my VHS Jane Fonda. Uh, Someone has uploaded them to YouTube. gotta tell you <laughs> well it's working because jane fonda is like 82 years old and looks amazing so i mean she's clearly yeah. had a lot of work done well sure but, but still i hope i can look anywhere close to that at 82 i'd like to look like that now i mean right. she, looks, she looks really she does really, look good. really good yeah yeah and also she's always wearing false eyelashes which i think is the key oh 100 percent. yeah yeah and a big thick swab a black eye. Oh, yeah. And then she's got, like, she always has big hair. Oh, well, yeah. Yeah. Can't have flat, crappy hair. Mm -mm. Let me, excuse me, let me shush. (laughs) I slept in coconut oil last night. I love it. Thank you. I thought you smelled nutty. Really? (laughs) Do you have a story to tell her? I'm trying to think, like, last last week we forgot a bunch of stories and we were pissed and we were like, we've got to write these down. Uh, my dad uh, is very excited to be a guest on the podcast. Excellent. He is pumped. He found an episode of Dateline that has inspired him. Wonderful. They, so I'm thinking maybe sometime in December. Love it. want to record with us. Excellent. I said, okay, here's the deal. For our guest episodes, we like to do themes. Because uh-huh. he was trying to not tell me anything. Yeah, so and we I was like, know something so we could like, do a little bit of a theme. That's not the way we work. Yeah. Like, Brandy yeah, no. and I try to give each other just enough so that we're not yeah. doing the same thing. So I asked, okay, what theme could your episode go under? Cheaters. Ooh. So we're going to be doing a cheaters episode. Love it. In... The next few weeks. Excellent. Featuring the man, the myth, the, myth, the legend, <laughs> Daryl <Darryl> Pitts. <laughs> I could not wait for that. He'll be here. Cheap shoes on. Woo. Cheap shoes and all. Mm-hmm. I can't wait to confront him. About what? Him. His feedback on the no. podcast? No. About what he called us. When the podcast first oh came out. Oh, my God. Oh. Yeah, tell everybody. So, okay. So, when, when like, our, we posted our very first right. episode right. of the podcast, everybody was really excited for us, all of our family members, whatever, and so a bunch of people were sharing it on their Facebook uh-huh. pages. And so, Daryl shared the podcast, and he said, my daughter Kristen and her long-term friend have started a podcast. Long term, that's you might as well say lesbian lover. That is for sure how it sounded because everybody else was like, Oh, you know, like Kristen and her BFF, yeah. and her friend, you know, yeah. blah, blah, blah. like that kind of thing. And my dad says, Long term friend. friend, and it just sounds like he and my mom are really struggling. Yeah, like with this is fact- Kristen and her special friend. We're pretty upset about it. We're trying to be supportive. They're roommates. Um, <laughs> for some reason, there's only one bed in their place. Uh, we don't we don't get it, but we are, we're trying to be cool. But yeah, that's exactly what it sounded like. <laughs> Kristen and her long-term friend. 
Wink, wink, <laughs> yeah. nudge, nudge. <laughs> yeah, we should we should call him out Definitely on that. Definitely need to confront him about yeah. that. And then I don't know how this guest episode is going to go because one of his earliest pieces of feedback is that our episodes are very, very long. Yeah, he hates how long our episodes are. So I guess we'll just have to edit his stuff we'll completely just, out. Yeah, we'll just edit him out. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, I'm looking forward to well, it. I think it'll be fun. Kristen. Yeah. Let me tell you, I'm happy to be your long-term friend. <laughs> <laughs> me too. It's, uh, I mean, you might be my longest relationship. Friend? <laughs> Let me think. I mean, other than like other people than I'm family? related to. Yeah. Yeah. No, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Same. Wow. That's wow. weird. Weird. We are long-term friends. Yeah, we are long-term friends. Listen, folks, if you feel like you're our long-term friend, we appreciate it. Thanks for listening. You know, okay, and I know you're trying to wrap up. And no, here it's I am, fine. Like, no, you take, down. take it down. But the last time I was at the salon, uh-huh. Doreen was at the, at the salon mm-hmm. the same time I was. She's yeah. a listener of the podcast. And she said, I feel like I know you. Yes. And I was thinking about that. And I'm like, man, if someone has listened to this podcast, they do know they us. They do I know mean, us. They know a lot about us. Yeah, they know too much about us. Yes. Yeah. Disturbing stuff. Listen, I mean, thanks for hanging in there with all the stuff you know about us, guys. (laughs) Thank you for being a part of our long-term friendship. (laughs) (laughs) And if you haven't already, please join us on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, Tinder, no, we're not the on last those last two. two. That's <laughs> fake. That's fi- that's fake news. Fake news. Okay, but if you haven't already, please give us a review. Yeah, leave us a rating. Leave us a review on iTunes. We're still working towards that 100 goal. So that would be awesome if you could help us out there. And then join us next week. When we'll be experts on two whole new topics. Podcast adjourned. And now for a note about our process. I read a bunch of stuff, then regurgitate it all back up in my very limited vocabulary. And I copy and paste from the best sources on the web, and sometimes Wikipedia. So we owe a huge thank you to the real experts. For this episode, I got my info from the strange and fabulous documentary, Finders Keepers. And I got my info from Crime Library, Murderpedia, The Observer, and Wikipedia. For a full list of our sources, visit lgtcpodcast.com. Any errors are, of course, ours, but please don't take our word for it. Go read their stuff. 